Well, hello and welcome to another edition of GodPod. This one is a little bit different from normal because it is a special GodPod which was recorded at uh, one of our uh, McDonald lectures which took place here in St. Melitus College a little while ago. Uh, this was a series of lectures um, generously uh, sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation. And um, in this series of lectures, we had a number of uh, speakers from all around the world speaking about different aspects of theology. And in this one today, uh, we have Professor Jeremy Begbie. Uh, Jeremy is from Duke University in the USA and spends some of his time here in the UK. And uh, he is discussing with uh, me and Jane Williams uh, a talk which he has just given on um, Christianity and the Holy Spirit and the Upside Down Kingdom. If you want to listen to the lecture itself, you can do so on the St. Melitus website. That's S-T-M-E-L-L-I-T-U-S dot org. But here is the God Pod, which is, as in the normal fashion, a conversation between three of us on a fascinating topic. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to God Pod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre, based in St. Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Jeremy. Um, what I was wondering was just, a, I guess, a slight kind of biographical question, because for you, clearly, theology and music and the arts are all bound up together. Mm. Was, there a, was there a moment when you suddenly saw the connection um, between uh, your faith, your understanding of your faith, your articulation of that in theological terms, and uh, your passion for music and the connection between the two? Was there a moment you suddenly saw that? Um, where, do, where does that come from, that connection? Because it's not a connection that many theologians have made necessarily. But yeah. Well, thank you. So I was a musician, as I were, originally. Until I was the age of 19, I had no interest in Christian things at all. And then I, I became a Christian. That, that was really through just the discovery of, of grace, the preaching of the gospel. It didn't come particularly through music, actually, in my case. Um, it was after that I began the, the, the real moments were the moments that the moments that I think you're speaking of were moments when I suddenly saw that music had extraordinary power to unlock scripture and aspects of the gospel that I hadn't seen before. So for instance, the music we just heard operates largely in patterns of tension and resolution. You hear sounds like this. And I'd always known that. When you heard this, you expected, wanted, and will get eventually that. that. That sets up a tension that has to be resolved. That presupposes something before it, namely that from which you've gone. In other words, you've got a kind of equilibrium, you've got a kind of tension, and then you've got a resolution. You've got a kind of home, and you've got a kind of a way, and then you've got a home again. Now, all the music that we know best in the Western tradition operates according to that pattern, at the giant level and at the very small level. You can sometimes be ages getting back home again. You go to an opera by Wagner, you'll be away from home for about four and a half hours <laughs> before you get the final chord. But that's how it operates. 
And I began just to think about that very obvious musicological fact, which everyone knows in music. And I said, well, wait a minute. That pattern does seem remarkably common uh, in literature, but of course supremely in scripture. That uh, it's full of home, away and home again. Prodigal son, life of Jesus, Israel. Exile. Exile, yes. precisely, and, and back again. So then I began to explore the way musicians resolved their tensions, or didn't. And delay became a fascination, which is a very big issue in, musical, in psychology of music. Then I began to look at the, the prominence of delay in scripture. That's when it all started happening. But it didn't happen by me hunting around in music for illustrations. It happened through studying music carefully. And then beginning to see those connections. But it took a long time. And there was another one. I know that when I found that out, that one, it suddenly hit me. I was in Princeton at the Center for Theological Inquiry. And it hit me one morning about 10.15. And I ran downstairs to the director of the center, Dan Hardy. And ran into his room and gave him a huge hug. But he was in the middle of a very formal meeting. So this didn't go down very well. <laughs> uh, and that was a kind of eureka moment. I suddenly thought, well, if I can do this, then that kind of corresponds. Because now you have an extraordinary tool to unlock the basic logic of the gospel. Huh. That's and then it makes you think, what were these composers doing? What kind of culture were they living in? How, how can we then interpret that culture theologically in the light of the sounds that they're making or not making? So that, that's how it happened. And I know you've, um, I mean, you've explored doctrines like the Trinity. Yeah. Through, um, that was another eureka moment. Yeah. Actually, that idea of you know, the, the Trinity, these three persons, one, three sounds in one, which get chords and so on. I mean, have there been particular doctrines that you found quite difficult that's very interesting. Musically. That is very interesting. Actually, the resurrection is quite hard. It's very hard to portray visually because you've got to speak about a body that's recognizable and yet exceeds that. So it's sometimes better, better to portray or evoke the effects of the resurrection more than the resurrection itself. And there's lots of lively, great music. Bach comes about as close to it because he's always creating music which seems to want to exceed its bounds. When you get to the end in Bach, you don't get to think, oh yeah, golly, well about time that came and that's when we expected it. You get him where he could have gone on for very much longer. And he said that. You know, he just kind of wind things up because he ran out of music paper. But he, he got the idea that, that, that he wanted to express a kind of abundance that is uncontainable. And there is that in Bach. And that's resurrection. That's resurrection. Because I guess resurrection by definition is something that's kind of hard to imagine. Absolutely. Um, and that's something, I mean, I was thinking about it a bit. You were talking tonight about this uh, idea of the sort of eschatological future, the, this upside-down nature of, of the kingdom. And there's a part of that which almost can't be imagined. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which presumably is why the arts help us a great deal. Because, I think that's right. as you were saying, they evoke things. They don't try to tie it down. And it depends a little what we mean by imagination there. There's much that can't be imaged. But then the imagination works in many ways apart from imaging things. Uh, you know, sound. Yeah. There's such a thing as a musical imagination, which often can do, often do things that the eye could never do, and vice versa. And there's literary imagination and poetic imagination as well. So I think we need a kind of wide view of imagination, but yeah, indeed, they, yeah. It can't, you can't simply do a one-to-one -one literal description of all these things. That's where you need the imagination. So I, did, I found it really helpful, um, that, because that, that concept of the upside down and the degraded becoming upgraded. Because the, the automatic place your brain goes is that means that the, the losers become winners. And yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to do that in the music, does it? No, absolutely. Um, That's what's so nice about it. Yeah. Actually, I've never explored that before. Tonight's the first time I've ever done that. Yeah, so I was wondering whether that would make any sense. Yeah.
It did. Yeah. Oh, no, that's right. <laughs> bit of affirmation, please. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you see, I mean, thinking about the arts in general, I guess in, in the history of Christian thought and yep. theology, there's, there's often been, <clears throat> maybe particularly in sort of Protestant circles, more of a suspicion of the image mm -hmm. uh, than, than the sound yep. or the word. And uh, I, know, I think it's Luther says once that, you know, it is the, it is the ear, mm. it is the organ of Christian perception, not mm. the eye. Mm. And he was very... Um, dismissive of, of the image of what appears to be the case because what appears what you see can be deceptive mm -hmm. whereas hearing and for him hearing in the word that is what sort of you know, enables you to perceive I mean do you see a, a, a distinction there between um, kind of oral musical sounds and, and the image in terms of their ability to convey yeah well part of me wants to say yes thanks Luther because I'm a musician and of course the ear is he superior and Music's much better than anything visual, etc. So I kind of warm to that. I warm to it for another, I think, more, a more theological reason that, that Scripture is inescapable. It's irreducibly at the center of the Christian faith. Words have to be used. Of course they do. Uh, but why? Because God has assumed words into his very purposes. It's, it's not we who chose them. God has chosen to do this. I mean, language really matters, therefore. So I never want to get away from that. If I ever do... Um, invited to preach at a church to say, oh, you want the piano and all that? No, I won't. I'll just speak for 20 minutes because I believe in that and I believe in that power. Um, so that's what Luther was also getting at. He was anxious at a time when he thought a certain kind of sensibility was overtaking the linguistic altogether, of course. And that's actually, well, I say with everybody who goes through the Reformation period thinking, oh, weren't they so silly about the arch? Hey, just listen to the sense in that. Just listen to the sense in that. Um, in our own culture, in a certain kind of image-saturated culture. There's a lot to learn from that. But yes, then, of course, this, the suspicion classically is overplayed and the pendulum swings, so you become suspicious of anything that was remotely artistic. And that's an extreme that, that's equally silly, I think. And, and Luther loved his music. He played, Absolutely, he of course, he's a huge musician, many, many serious times. musician. And, um, and I guess that's because, you know, it strikes me with words... It's not just the word, it's the way you say it. It's the sound. Because, you know, we all know words that can be very true, but delivered in a very kind of harsh and, and, and unkind way. Or the same words can be delivered in a way that, that, that speaks of, of love. Which actually brings you into the, the, um, the kind of realm of, of music. Absolutely. You know, it's not just the content of the word, it's the way the word is sounded and spoken. And so the, so the word and the kind of musical sound of it all bound up together it seems to me and that's true of the incarnation too it's not just absolutely a kind of abstract word it's a word spoken in absolutely music. absolutely um language has its own music and, the, and the, the evolutionary theorists believe that music and language were originally part of one kind of muso language it wasn't quite one or the other but a kind of emotional uh kind of gut level expression concerned especially with creating community that sort of thing uh, but then, in evolutionary history, they went their separate ways. But what you find there, of course, that music's going to have its, its linguistic things. Undoubtedly, it does. It's not, a, it's not a language in the strict sense, but it's got language-like features. And language has its musicality as well. Hopkins, I talked about, I mean, that's musical language, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you, can't, if you don't read it aloud, really, which is what he wanted. So you hear, you know, tombs tumbling to decay. The whole, you hear it and feel it in the very sound. I wanted to, if I could ask you to unpack a bit more what you were saying about the Holy Spirit's crucifixion power. Mm. 
um, uh, which I found, a, a, again, a really helpful and striking um, way of talking about, about the power of the Holy Spirit, because we tend to separate those two. Absolutely. Oh. Tom Smale had this lovely thing about you know, Tom Smale, Scottish theologian, who probably taught here, did he, or something? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He said, be very careful not to say that the crucifixion is on crucifixions connected with the pardon department on the ground floor, but we've got to graduate to the power department on the second floor, and that's the, the realm of the spirit, as if that's where power starts once you've been pardoned, then you can get on and forget that and go on to real power. I think 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 makes clear you, you simply can't do that, that in the cross you're dealing with ultimately the power of the triune love of God, and nothing's more powerful than that. I think you need to go on and say that power can have different kinds of manifestations, some very much more dramatic than others, sure. But if it isn't ultimately, if we, you know, when you, I used to go to a lot of these gatherings, maybe you don't get them now, when you say more power, Lord, more power, more power. Or if the preacher's bad, you say less power, Lord, less power. You know? uh, I used to go to a lot of those, and I just wanted to stand up and say, for what? For what? The power to love, the power to go on the toilet cleaning rotor. Yeah. The power to speak to someone in that church you've tried to avoid for the last six months. That's power. And if, that is, if that's not happening amidst all the other manifestations of power, it's whatever else. It's not really much about Christianity. That, that would be awesome. Yeah, I was, I was intrigued also by that connection between the spirit and the cross and was just thinking about that text in, I think it's in Hebrews 9, where it talks about you know, how Christ, through the eternal spirit, yeah. offered himself without blemish to the Father. Father. It's precisely through the spirit that Christ was able to offer himself on the cross. That's one of the few references to the spirit in Hebrews. It is. 9.14. It's, yeah. it's a very curious verse, but I think that's what, yeah. that's what we're getting at. And I suppose what that seems to say is that it is precisely through the spirit. You know, without the spirit, Christ was not able to offer himself without Absolutely. blemish. That actually it is precisely the spirit who took Jesus to the, the cross. And it's, it is the spirit who enables us to live a life that is without yes. blemish, or to, to, to begin to, to get towards that direction, to do the very things you're talking about. Is the spirit, is the... I, I often try to reflect on this if one dares in Gethsemane or in the cross, what is the spirit doing there? Well, in Gethsemane he cries, Abba, Father, Romans 8, Galatians 4, that's the work of the spirit. Yeah. How do you go on saying Abba, Father, in the midst of appalling extremity? By the spirit, yeah. that's the miracle. Yeah, the Spirit enables Jesus to say yes to the very end. And the Spirit is the one who takes Jesus to the cross. But he's also the Spirit of joy. Absolutely, of course. The, the Spirit is always connected with in joy. Luke, in Luke particularly, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So you can't get away from those two things either. Um, what, one other area I wanted to, to, um, uh, to explore a bit more is, is, is <coughs> the kind of link between the Spirit and creation. Mm, yeah. And... Um, because uh, I think it's I mean, I one of my other favorite theologians beside Luther is um, St. Basil, mm. Basil the Great. Yeah. And um, Because Graham is a church historian. You're talking yeah, about the awfulness of teaching Terrible church thing history. Terrible it is, teaching so, church history. So, yeah, but, but you preach the goodies, you see. Yeah, you teach the, the goodies. goodies. Exactly, you get some goodies in there. And uh, because one of the things you know, Basil talks about is how the spirit, spirit is the one who perf perfects created yeah. things. That is the particular work of the spirit, to take what has been created and to perfect it. Wonderful. And um, I was just wondering how you relate that to the, this idea of the upside-down nature of what yeah. the Spirit does. Does the Spirit turn creation upside-down, or, or how does that work? I think the upside-downness refers to 
very specifically the redemptive work of dealing with sin. That I means Calvin's good on this in Ephesians 6. He talks about, in commentary in Ephesians 6, talks about sin as it's, it's the sin that's turned the world upside down. It is that need. So I don't think we must then make that a kind of universal rule about every last thing needs to be turned upside down. I think. So it's a kind yes, of, turn, of course, turning things the right way up again. Uh, precisely. Precisely. That's what the Spirit's about. Which is to bring them to the perfection that they were, that they were meant for. Because uh, there's a lot I say, but I think that, I mean, Colin Gunton was so good on this, the perfecting of the particular. Um, music is so instructive on that. You know, many different voices. And, and in a really good choir, they'll always bring each other to a kind of perfection, a particularity. And when you've experienced that, there's nothing quite like it. You know you're distinct. You can feel it. The others affirm and indeed create your distinctiveness in a way. Uh, that happens in an orchestra as well, and that's a thrilling. That's a thr- it happens in, in sport, actually. It happens in a team, particularly the Australian rugby team. Oh, sorry, no, the, the New, New Zealanders. Zealanders. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you're listening to this later on, Rugby World Cup final, the New Zealanders showed us just how rugby should be played. No, sorry, yeah, the particular, and Hopkins was the great poet of the particular, of course, as well. He, things become more fully themselves. This is what the spirit is trying to do. And that's the sense in which... Sin and evil un- undo things. They, they, That's right. They, they, they make things un- unable to become. They to take them away from what they were intended to be, which yeah. is why the Spirit works against that. Yep. To bring about, you know, to turn things the right way up again. That's fantastic. And to enable them to become all that they were always intended to I be. I must come to your lectures. I think you, well, you're I, welcome anytime. But he's stolen Basil, has he? he? No one else is allowed to teach Basil. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've stolen Basil. <laughs> he's, he's, he's mine. <laughs> Who does Gregory? Uh, well, I do a bit of Gregory. Gregory. Okay. Gregory. I don't play music in my lectures, though. They're much more boring. You ought yours. to do that. You're... Oh, no. <laughs> Lecture together, I think, is the answer. Exactly. Um, you did have some quite uh, challenging things to say to worship leaders, mm. <laughs> Jeremy. I wasn't trying to get at worship leaders. No, no, no. no. Um, one of the things you said is that we need to do our festive praise through the cross. Mm. Give a few tips to worship leaders about how to do that. Well, what I was getting at there was... No, I mean, I'm, I have nothing critical to say about worship music. I think that's what they do very well. Um, the festive praise, is, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at there is in, a, in situations of extremity and awfulness, we mustn't assume that if we find ourselves praising God in the midst of that, we are somehow being disrespectful, demeaning, not taking evil seriously. At its best, you will be saying, I refuse to be bound and captive to the law of sin and death. Now, you've got to tell you, the terrible danger of sentimentality is escapism, of course, but then with the whole Holocaust thing, you have to be incredibly careful. You don't seem to be um, trivializing that in any way at all. But it's, but all I know is there's a a certain tradition of theology which, which, how can I put it respectfully, can be so rightly impressed with the evilness of evil that, that in taking it seriously, you almost collude with it as if it were the very last word. And I think we need to, as if, and as if it was the fundamental word about creation, which is not. That's what David Bentley Hart would have, would have said if he'd, you know, if, if he'd been here. But on the, the worship leader thing, no, I think they do that very well. I think that's why they need it. In, in Los Angeles, I quite often go to um, the Church of God in Christ in, in uh, South Central LA, which is an enormous black Pentecostal church, 
in an extremely challenging area, as they would say there. Um, very, very run down. High unemployment, riots, the whole worked. But I mean, the, the praise is absolutely explosive. But they're also profoundly involved in every community ministry in the area. I'll listen to them. But the praise is absolutely, I mean, roof-blowing. And I think that, that's what I mean by festive praise. No one accused them of being sentimental or evading things. No, not that church. So maybe some, but not that. That's hard to get right. But worship leaders need to be aware of that. And does that um, bring in, I mean, there's one sort of dimension of prayer and praise, which is, of course, lament. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the sorrowing over the pain of the world. And do, do, you, do you see that coming into... Um, do you see that in worship leading? And in Very strongly. And I think you find that many, and there may be some here, in the worship leading movement are rediscovering lament in a, in a very big way. Certainly in the States, that's happening all over the place now. The, if I may just comment, the problem is, I think we're getting more and more lyrics about lament. I'm not sure the music has yet caught up with that. Okay. Yeah. The, the music can be extraordinarily, and I, you know, it is a little bit odd if you're talking about the worst things of death to sort of... <laughs> That kind of, I mean, I, you know, best to keep silent than have that. That has a place elsewhere, but not when you're, not when you're in, in, so, so there's in something the mind. for worship leaders, isn't it? The, the music Very much so. So we tend to think, mid-match. I'm sure they don't hear, but you tend to think, or oh, fix the words and get them sorted out and very lamenty. Yeah, sure. uh, but I'll go on playing music that is Major saying right. something very different. And then you've got to ask for the congregation, what are they really receiving? And very often, it's, 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 70% the music and not the, not the lyrics. And we've got to address that somehow. I mean, John Bell is a kind of prophet in that respect. Whether you like his songs or not, at least he's seen that. And there are others who see that too. Do you, do you see them as two quite separate things, praise and lament? Or, or can you, uh, other examples where actually they've kind of been blended together in, 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 a, in a sort of harmony? Yes, I think in the Psalms. That's, that's what happens, isn't it? Um, to get it all within one piece of music is pretty hard, although it has, it has been done. Um, Psalm 22 itself, of course, leads to ultimate praise. So lament is never the last word, but you can't rush through it. You have to, there's a dwelling in lament that's very, very important. Of course, Lent, but I mean many other seasons as well. A danger in cultures, you can rush through that. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I do, there's a whole lecture I do in lament, but I, this is not the time. This, you've had quite enough of me tonight. There you go. I'd like to ask one last question before we throw it out to the um, uh, to others as well. Um, and it, you, you talked very um, fascinatingly about this idea of the spirit and the upside-down nature of the kingdom and that, that, that um, the spirit brings about. Um, how, how would you distinguish that from other sort of more secular vi- visions of the upside-down Yeah, world? I see. That's interesting. You know, you think of Marxism, you think of anarchism, you think of <coughs> ways of thinking which are profoundly secular or non-religious who also envisage some sort of upside-down turning things around, you know, so the, the rich are brought low and the lower brought high and so on. How do you distinguish the, the spirit's version of that? Christian well, I suppose that's what I was going to do about different kinds of reversal. That's what I was trying to say, that mm. uh, it's all about what kind of power you want. Uh, if, if someone is pressing, oppressing another, this reversal cannot mean the same oppression, but just the terms change. It can't mean that. So it means that that relationship has to be transformed, that somehow real power is dis- needs to be discovered, which is the power of love, which is the power of risk and all the things that love involves. 
And that means that power relationship will be transformed. Now, I'm not therefore against hierarchy or something. I don't think, I mean, I think that's naive. Um, I'm not against institutions. I think, again, that's a naivety that, that sometimes you get when people want to kind of shake everything up. So the difference is, is that it's always God by the cross and by the power of, of the love of the cross. He, that's how he overturns and upturns. And if we don't go through there, we'll always be in a mess because we'll just substitute one fallen power move for another. And I think history shows that. Dare I say it, church history sometimes. Jeremy, thank you so much for that. It's been a fascinating little discussion. And um, we've got a bit of time now for some uh, questions that have come in. So um, um, can I just um, uh, uh, launch out with one, which um, says, amazing lecture. My question is this. Does Jeremy think the spirit is at work in artists that do not profess Christianity? Definitely. Next question. <laughs> There's your answer. That was a quick one. No, I, I mean, of course, I'm bit. often asked that. I mean, was, was, Beethoven, was Beethoven a Christian, a strange sort of Christian, possibly? I think he saw that Schiller's optimism was ridiculous, but he didn't do it from the point of view of the cross or, or Christ. Um, does Mozart compose fantastic music, that's the whole Salieri, Amadeus thing. Yes, he does, by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, that's possible. But I don't think we need to make a kind of law out of that or construct our theology around that. We say, thank God for it. And we do what we can to center everything around Christ. Um, so I give thanks, I work with many musicians who are not Christians, uh, and I'm amazed what can be done. Mind you, you're made very aware of limits at the same time. You hit, the, you hit limits very, very quickly. Um, but anyway, that's, that's another story. Yes, and if the spirit is the one who was brooding over the creation yeah. at the beginning, you can expect the spirit to be at work in the world of and not the church. Of course, absolutely. And maybe concentrated in the church. You know, but I've often, if, it, precisely, yeah, you've got to say that, I think. But the, people say, uh, you know, is the spirit work outside the church? I jolly well hope so, because otherwise there would be no church and it would never grow. Um, so we've got to say that. But you don't build your whole theology there. You know, it's yes. a question of... Point taken. Another one? Um, this is interesting. How do you sustain orthodoxy through music or art when it can evoke such different responses? Yeah. Uh, when the church is doing its job properly. When all this happens within a worshipping, praying, believing, lively, flourishing church. In other words, I don't think it's, it's a different question from how do you sustain orthodoxy anywhere else? And you need to be acutely aware of the particular powers of different art forms to, to pull you away from orthodoxy. Yeah, you need to be very alert. But that's, a, but that's a good question. I've talked here largely, or have I, about the positive power of the arts. And I sometimes overdo that, and then people say, well, isn't it a bit dangerous? Well, yeah, of course it's very dangerous, like all things. And maybe I didn't say enough about that, but uh, you sustain orthodoxy by, by belonging to a church that celebrates it and lives it out. Another one here, which is um, back to the question of how you portray um, or how you express different doctrines in, in art. And there's a question, how would you do the atonement? How would you do the atonement? I like it. Through music. Uh, there's no one way. There's no one way. Um, if I use music, then I, I explore dissonance very, very fully. 
and, and dissonance is a complex thing, but I mean, Christ bears the dissonance of the world. That's the way I would go into atonement. But you can't do everything through music, but you can certainly do that. Um, you talked about spirit outside the church. The, if I, and I played some music there, it was a little bit rudely suggesting it was kind of trivializing the cross. But there's plenty of secular music, film music, and classical music as well, that explores the evilness of evil very profoundly. Now, on its own, that's horrific. You don't do that. But I have no qualms about pulling in composers like um, Anton von Webern, for instance, who writes, who, who stares into the depths of hell, there's no doubt. But if that it has to be set within the story of the cross and the resurrection, but set within that story, it's extremely powerful. Now, I don't think he would like me doing that, but that's, that's what way, I would do. Faith in resurrection that enables you to look quite deeply into the Absolutely, but we've got to do that in the company of Christ. Yeah. We do. Apart from that, you'll get sucked in. Sucked in. Right. So it's dangerous stuff. Yeah. That's it. One more. Yep. Um, it's a nice big one for you, Jeremy. Oh, what, one thing should the Church of England change in its mission and ministry to be a more in, authentic embodiment of the Spirit's upside-down future? Oh my goodness me! <laughs> the one. Church of England. Yeah, they're only asking for one, and only the Church of England. Oh, that narrows it down. Yeah. yeah, right. I don't feel qualified to answer that because I'm not here the whole year. Oh, boy, one thing. About the spirits upside down. Yeah. To be a more authentic embodiment of the spirits upside down future. If the church can start relating fruitfully to the mentally ill and what we call the disabled and the ugly, and the physically unattractive, we can really, if we can really explore that well and think about that through, that would be one thing. I suspect that was not an answer that we were expecting, and it's a really profound one. Thank you. I suppose it's something I've learned through with my brother's experience. Yeah. Uh, whatever, this is an ex And I can't come into that phrase. I find, I find myself using it, those we'd rather forget. For elderly parents, it's even more. I say this with respect, Peter, in the States, even more. You know, the terror of death of any sort just means a sweeping away of even talking about such things. And I think that's where that's where we need kind of large communities or reality ministries in Durham, where you where you walk in and you don't know who's the helper and who's the, you just don't know, and that's the point because we're all in this together, and so we can face those who threaten us. But that's a very hard thing. Very hard thing. If you visit a mental hospital or a prison or any of these places, you will, we will be deeply threatened. But we do that in the company of Christ. Now I think that church does that. It's showing, some, it's showing society. It's the old thing about what's the real mark of a society, how it treats such people. And of course the Nazis, notoriously, the law of sin and death, no, they are of no use. But also what you were saying about your brother, not just how we treat them, I know, but how they are. Well, I was going to say, yes. even that language, I shouldn't, yes. be, I shouldn't be, I was thinking about how the church treats, yes. you know, you ask what should the church do. Yeah. That very language, Jean Vanier would say, needs to be yeah. reversed, which is the whole point. So you suddenly realize, yeah, you've said it, when you are exposed, because you are loved in a new way, 
and you are appreciated in a new way. And so you discover, rediscover more of your humanity as they do and together. So thank you, Jane, that's very helpful. There's a question here about um, music in the resurrection. So will music be more musical in the new creation? <laughs> I love it. And how, will there be more notes? Yeah. And if so, will there be harmony or cacophony? I know. How do you, how do you imagine that? Yes, to all of that. I don't think there'll be dissonance in the sense of destructive sound or dehumanizing sound. If you ask me to try to hear it, I can't. Any more than if you ask me to you know, image it, I'm not sure I can. Uh, well, I, I think I did mention, is it Gregory? What's the epictasis, epictasis thing about the deeper you go into God, the, the richer it gets, all that. C.S. Lewis has this, I think, as well. How do we even begin to imagine more and more colors, more and more sights. I don't know. So people say to me, you know, will they play Mozart in heaven or Sufjan Stevens or, or whoever? I don't know. All I know is it's gonna be pretty good though. And it's, and it's going to be expansive. It's not going to be round and round in a circle. Nor is it going to be silent. You know, I said that we had, a, I, I'm a part of my Bible study in my church, which actually has also Richard Borkham in it, of all people. So we keep very quiet. But, and the point, I keep trying to, because I've been so fascinated with what people say. And when, because I, I really do learn on this, on this job. And there was a nice, we were doing, I think, 1 Corinthians 15. And I was saying, you know, this expansive thing and ever more song, and you know, getting so kind of carried away. And a woman said, oh no, I was looking forward to a rest. <laughs> but now that's the thing about running and not growing weary why is she looking forward to a rest because she's tired she's tired can you imagine a place where you don't get tired Irenaeus thought that the grapes would be bigger oh I like that and the figs would be sweeter and uh, he, I was uh, imagining sort of bunches of grapes but the grapes look like rugby balls you know I like strange this image. he's trying to imagine it's like the mega, the mega mangoes like. you see the mega mango yeah. Right. yeah and the C.S. Lewis had the thing about the grass you know being more solid so yeah, you could cut exactly. yourself on it. I think that's, right, that's yeah. back to the perfection, perfecting of creation, that yeah. particular things become more themselves, not less. Yeah. They don't go into some hazy whatever it is. I prefer the big grapes and the sweet figs to the hard grass, to be honest. I, I know. Yeah. Do you know, now that I've got the grapes, thank you for that. Again, yeah. Is that copyrighted? Do I have to acknowledge no, that's, you? That's an irony. It's not me. So it's irony. Okay, yeah, right. It is. It's all there. But I have to mention the president. Well, the bishop. He has so many titles, I've just kind of lost track of his superlatives. I lose my own titles sometimes too. His abundant greatness, it, it exceeds all, all kind of boundaries. No, 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 right? stop, stop. Sorry, saying too far. <laughs> Uncontainable, yeah, I'm sorry. This is not going in a good direction. Um, here's another one. What would a tone deaf theology look like? Oh, which? A tone deaf theology. Oh, turned out, oh gosh, Completely yes. unmusical theology. Yeah, I'm often asked this. My father was, he could sort of move with music, but he couldn't enjoy it, really. And he certainly couldn't sing, or at least he thought he couldn't. He probably couldn't. Uh, what's called amusia, or total tone deafness, inability to respond to music anyway, is incredibly rare, culturally. All the surveys show that. Uh, the ability to sing a note Actually, the inability to sing a note accurately. That, that's, that's common. A, people, a lot of people do struggle with that, although many can be taught. But having said that, there are some for whom music just is not going to do the trick. And I think we say, well, they'll enjoy life in other ways. I mean, I don't think that's... 
That's just life. But they're far fewer than we imagine. And I think we've got to also remember that our responses to music are very often profoundly rhythmical. As my father could move to music, he danced to music, you see, which was, was interesting. And, and uh, research shows that the kind of bodily, visceral response to music, to the rhythm of music, is incredibly important for, for the experience of music. We also need to remember that even very profoundly deaf people, literally deaf people, can get a huge amount out of music. Evelyn Glennie is the greatest percussionist alive. I'm sure you've seen her. She's completely deaf and gets and has bare feet and does the whole thing through, through her feet. And she is simply astounding. I've heard her many times. You would never know. Never. I mean, pieces of appalling complexity and accurate, and, you know, that demand accuracy. She can do it. And that's because music is felt through the body, through vibrations in the body. It's not just heard in ears. So that's hard. I do speak to some audiences and people say, you know, I'm really tone deaf, I didn't get it. It's a very small number. A lot come to me and say, I was told I was unmusical when I was eight. I was kicked out of the choir when I was 10. And a music master beat the bot out of me when I was 14 and have hated music ever since. But tonight, you've made me realize I could actually like this. And that's a wonderful thing. And so what would be the theological equivalent oh, I know, interesting. of being tone deaf? Because then we've all met people who just don't get it with theology. And is oh, with theology. I see what you're saying. Sorry. Yeah. And is that because, you know, they, they, they have no theological rhythm? I mean, what, what, what does that mean? How, what might it I mean? I suppose it would be, we've got then to ask, well, what theology are they not getting? Because there are many different types. Yeah. There's a certain kind of systematic theology, which however much you try, people are just not going to sort of tune into. And then we've got to believe that there are going to be other vehicles, other media. Um, I mean, I, t I teach doctrine week in, week out. Say, that's, you know, at Ridley, that's 17 years teaching doctrine. Um, and I did find there was always a, a group in the class who could sort of do it for the exams, but who clearly were not in, I'm sure you have this as well, are not in tune with it. <laughs> uh, all, our, all our students are totally in tune. I appreciate that, absolutely. <laughs> Now, provided they can still enter the world of Scripture, that's fine. But I did find very often with those people, it could be an image, it could be a drama, it could be me playing something, and the, the scales would fall off. You know, that would be the way through. And I say, I hope they get Scripture. Remember, Scripture comes in all these different modes as well. So when people say, oh, I, I get Scripture, well, there's so many different aspects. So if, they, if they're not getting this bit, they're going to, I hope. Yeah, I mean, we, we, God has given us incredible variety of modes of access in scripture and, and we should rejoice in that but that's, I haven't thought much about that and I think it's a it's a very interesting one isn't it because it does suggest that we that we do do theology um, as though it's one always one kind and, of uh, thing that's good yeah and actually if we could do it in different ways I'm so sure you're right it was music and more I'm people sure you're right might be able to get it wouldn't they? I'm sure you're right I mean, I suppose I have, to, in my teaching, I have found that, and I find that when I'm teaching in the secular music department as well, if you're asked to introduce theology, they will understand it at extraordinary profound levels if you do it through music, because they know what you're on about musically. And that's a fascinating thing to yeah. see, I think, yeah. Do you use images much yourself, or poems, or in your own teaching? I do, in the, uh, in the teaching of church history, because it often seems to me the, the art of a period of course. tells you an awful lot of about the way in which people have thought about God. 
and the way in which people have thought about the world. Of course. So you can trace, you know, through different sort of straight stages of medieval mm. uh, thought, you know, a sort of shift from a very, you know, those pictures of the saints with gold backgrounds and, and uh, halos, also the kind of realism of Bruegel and, and, uh, and others and so on, which gives you that sort of shift that goes on in the Middle Ages between the sort of you know, realist to the nominalist Absolutely. view of the world. And so Fascinating. On. I'm so yeah. glad you do that. Yeah. But it's also the, 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 other, the, the extra shift, which is not just using it as a didactic tool, That's right. but actually letting it be itself. Yep. So it will do something that, that your words are not, are not doing. And, um, you know, poetry will often do that, won't it? it it's no good saying, and this means yep. X, Y, and Z, because it means what it says. Whatever that may be. I remember Tom Wright speaking on, was it Luke, what's the, Emmaus, Luke 23, 24, uh, at, at a church not far from here, and it was a kind of huge conference, and he did 40 minutes of very detailed exegesis of this passage, and it was it, it, gripping, I mean, interesting, and a lot of people were taking notes, and it was just, it, it, the room was sort of listening, it was okay, and then he said, now I'm going to retell this story as a modernist with a postmodernist walking to Emmaus, yeah. and he retold this story, and you could have heard a pin drop. No one moved. No one took notes. And when he got to the end, if you didn't get the point, you were pretty silly. I mean, you know. Yeah, and I've often reflected on that. I think you need both of those. I think you need both. Because he couldn't do the one without the other. Yeah, it's pleasant and struck me how, um, you know, talk to a certain, a certain kind of atheist almost just reminds me sometimes of, of, of someone who is, is kind of like, you know, with one sense that's not quite working. You know, they may be very very fine sense of, no, I think of, right. um, of, of, of hearing, of, of sight, but have no sense of smell. And you try to describe a smell and they you just yeah. cannot get it's it. Interesting. And um, it's a bit like that sometimes when you're talking with particular kind of atheists, they just cannot get that thing. And I, and I wonder whether, you know, something like suddenly finding the world of music opening up opens up a whole new kind of world and That's dimension right. that then affects all the other That's senses right. at the same time, which is kind of what Christian faith does. It's not like a, a separate thing that is in parallel to the rest of your reality, that yes. begins to kind of in, invade the rest of the reality as well. But faith is a kind of a sense in that way. Very interesting. David Bentley Hart, it's a pity you didn't yeah, have him, because when you he would I hope he wouldn't mind me saying this. No, he would, because he's written it. He's written in one of his books, I don't have a pastoral bone in my body. Yeah. Um, when he was, we were at Princeton together for a bit, and I played the piano quite a lot, and we had an evening when I played the piano. He was a completely different person. There was a kind of extraordinary warmth and unlocking going on with that. Uh, uh, just another story, a month ago, I find myself, it was in Duke, and we had a, a visit from Professor Roy Kahn, who is at Cambridge. He's a world transplant surgeon, uh, uh, leading. He's in his 90s, or 80s now. But he pioneered, he did all the pioneering work in Cambridge in the 60s and 70s, an atheist, very definitely. Um, and he was, he was shy, and as he says, he is, and a bit awkward and all that. And then there was a piano there, and they wanted me to play something, so I played the music, and he would just... Everything about him changed and relaxed. Yeah. Of course, that's why some of them, these surgeons have music, you know, yeah. as they're operating. It's I think I'd rather they switch the music off and just concentrate <laughs> on the arm of myself. That was Godpod, a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre. 
If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.